Hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Very special guest on today's podcast. This is episode 167, Programming in the Rehab Center. We have Dr. Derek Miles. He's my personal PT. He doesn't know that, but he's my personal PT. Whenever something goes wrong, I'm like, hey, Derek, if I had a friend who happened to uh, dislocate their shoulder and then just reduce it in the field, what would you say about that? Uh, so happy to have you, Derek. Uh, you just got back from what is the what was the conference called in San Antonio? It's the the combined sections meeting for the American Physical Therapy Association. It, it's the only conference where you have like ortho, neuro, acute care, home health. So it would be like if the AMA had every branch of medicine come into a conference. Yes, Th- this dude slid in my DMs. He's like, "Hey, are you coming to the combined sections?" Like that was his, the the whole text. And I was like, I have no idea what you're saying to me right now. (laughs) He's like, I guess not then. Uh, So that makes more sense now from, uh, but uh, it was you, you were down there. Hannah was down there. uh, Mike was down there and you guys met up with Austin. Yep. Yeah. We, it was a large cohort of barbell medicine representation. Uh, In the way of news, before we hop into this week's podcast, we, Derek and I worked on a new template offering for you. Uh, We have a hip rehab template. So this is effectively um, a 13 week program. It's got three separate blocks, three phases uh, with programming specific for hip pain. Uh, It's mostly normal upper body programming. And when I say normal, I mean, if you're interested in strength and hypertrophy, typical barbell medicine stuff, this would be your standard uh, upper body programming. It's fully customizable. You can pick the exercises um, and then there's an associated PDF that goes with the template to explain everything, give you some, a peek behind the curtain. And there's videos for all the movements because some of the, um, we would call them rehab specific movements, which is really, really just unique ways to load where people are having pain or where they're sensitive to. Uh, we have videos for all of those and the rest of the movements in the, uh, in the template. Derek, who, who is this template made for? Because when I say hip pain, I think people are like, oh, just pain in the front of my hip. But there's, it's more to, there's more to it than that. Well, so a lot of times when we talk about the hip, it gets categorized into anterior hip, lateral hip, or posterior hip. So something like a proximal hamstring tendinopathy or lateral hip pain, whether we call it a glute tendinopathy, or we can name it 700 different things. This is really what that template is built for. And it comes down to where if you can understand the chronicity of an injury, you can figure out kind of where your entry point should be and what the loading paradigm should be in order to address whatever someone's presenting with. Yeah. So if someone's got hip, if they've been diagnosed with hip osteoarthritis, this is for them. If they've got, you know, femoral acetabular impingement syndrome, the, you know, the boogeyman of, of the hip, uh, this template's for them. A bunch of other different named, you know, diagnoses that this, this, uh, template applies to it would basically be our default programming for someone who has pain in the front or the side or the rear of the hip area, anatomically speaking. And so if you're wondering, does this, would this template be for me? If I just described you in any way, shape or form, yes, this, this would be it. Um, and then, you know, this is just meant to complement some of our other stuff that we have available, we have a knee rehab template, shoulder rehab template. There'll be more joint specific stuff uh, and injury specific stuff coming out as we develop them. But uh, without go, without getting too far off track, Derek and I are, gonna, are working on a youth template. Finally, we're, we're just compiling all of your youth articles, expanding on them and putting together a customizable template for 
you know, preseason work, in-season work, you know, and stuff designed directly for the youth population. So I think that'll be very useful. Uh, it's a nice segue into today's podcast topic. We're talking about programming in the rehab setting, and we're going to take a detour uh, at the end. Well, it's not really a detour as much as it is a compliment, a complimentary sort of path uh, to talk about resistance training in the youth population. We already did that podcast. I'll link that in the description below, but we'll kind of circle the wagons and come back to it. So we're talking about, yeah, designing a rehab training program. So Derek, after we get a better understanding of what happened, so where when the individual started experiencing discomfort, current symptoms that they're experiencing, what else would you want to know before you put pen to paper or finger to keyboard and uh, try to flesh out a program? There's a lot of variables always at play. What access the athlete has for equipment, um, what their training history was. I, I think a lot of times, especially when we're looking at like quote unquote sports rehab, it gets defined as the two times a week for 45 minutes or, or whatever we're going to say. And if you're taking an athlete who is used to training five to 10 hours a week, I don't care how good you are at programming variables. If you only have 90 minutes, that athlete's now out of shape. I, I think that was something that was really, I, I tried to convey at CSM in that you have the tissue, if we're going to talk about an acute injury that it is changed, but you also have the athlete in front of you and being able to turn it into how do I keep you in as good of shape as I possibly can while we go through this process, because even if we do everything we need to do to return strength, uh, rebuild a limb symmetry index, you know, whatever quantifiable measures we want to track, if you're out of shape, you're not ready to return to sport. And so a lot of times with athletes in the rehab setting, um, and I, I think it is a little bit different in how we approach it with borrow medicine, because most of these people are running some type of template or, or script and they're used to, already I lift four days a week and it's very easy to put those pieces together. But an athlete who's been pulled from their respective sport and they're used to five days a week and now we're down to two, well, we have a lot of variables at play that we can really try and maximize. And, you know, specific to the youth population, if, if you have someone who is overly specialized, a lot of times that athlete never has an off season. So you actually get to look at your rehab block and you're like, well, congratulations. This is your off season. We actually get to do all the things that you've been putting off because of time constraints prior to this. Has it been your experience that when people, when you come in contact with most, most people, and we'll just exclude the barbell medicine pain and rehab cohort for now, because I think that's, there's definitely a lot of selection bias going on there. It's like, how do they end mm -hmm. up in the barbell medicine funnel, right? Like they've been following our material. They've maybe been following our programs. They're, you know, picking up what we're putting down. And so maybe that would be uh, likely be a significant, significant bias there, but prior to that or outside of barbell medicine, do you find that most people that come under your care are undertrained just in general? Yes. Yes. Without a doubt. And there's a paradigm that's kind of emerged now when we talk about sports specialization, where your criteria is more than eight months of any one sport a year, more hours of participation than you are years old. And so you have these adolescents who are overly specialized, but they're only playing baseball three days a week. And so you're actually not meeting physical activity guidelines, but you're overly specialized. So it's, 
you've managed to create this paradox of like worst possible scenario that you can for athletic development. They're, they're highly specialized in a singular sport early on without having this broad base of physical development. They're not spending any additional time outside of the sport training to be an athlete, you know, and, and meet those physical activity guidelines. So strength, endurance, development, all sorts of other stuff. They're basically using the sport, both competition and practice as their, <laughs> you know, training you know, as their exercise, which on some level would work if you were talking about if someone wanted to meet their aerobic uh, conditioning requirement for physical activity guidelines and they liked a particular sport, particularly if they're an adult. I don't really have any problems with that. If they're like, I want to play rec soccer and that's kind of how I'm going to do my conditioning work for the week. I'm like, cool, man, do your thing. But that's not enough, as you mentioned earlier, to meet physical activity guidelines. I think part of what gets lost a lot of times is, and I've said this to athletes before, if you want to tell me what you're going to hurt, tell me what sport you play. It, swimmers like swimmers don't tear ACLs, and it, it, we tend to look at this and forget that we have injury rates for specific specific sports. If you want to play basketball, well, we're going to have a higher likelihood of ankle sprains, and you know I can do things that might shift that paradigm one way or the other. But I think what gets lost a lot of times, to your point, is that. It turns out in order to be a basketball player, you need to be an athlete first. In order to be a swimmer, you should be an athlete first. And instead, we've shifted this paradigm to where we have unathletic basketball players or unathletic baseball players because we've developed this really narrow skill set because, you know, we, we we're still fighting this uphill battle about 10,000 hours for expertise and all this stuff that has no substantiation to it whatsoever or even worse in the youth population, lifting is bad for you. And it's, it's CSM, you know, I, I made the point and I will continue to beat this drum. Thinking resistance training is going to stunt your growth is the same logic as thinking playing basketball is going to make you taller. People probably chuckle, but then I think if you held these people's, if, if you held their feet to the fire and you're like, okay, so how many of you are adequately loading your patients? And you and you went into their log books, you know, their clinical log books, you kind of reviewed maybe some of their charts You'd be like, look, look, man, it's not y'all are maybe doing a little bit better than average, but like by and large, yeah, under be, the patients are being underloaded. Well, when the heaviest thing in your clinic is a 35 pound kettlebell, it, you're you're not going to be able to provide adequate load. And the problem is, and, and this kind of gets into a, a meta conversation, but we have clinics producing research showing that between a third and a sixth of their athletes are meeting their return to sport criteria. And you go into those clinics and you see that the heaviest thing is a 35 pound kettlebell. And you know, you're having athletes six months out of surgery using 20 pounds for an open chain knee extension. And you're like, well, I, I can tell you why you're having these outcomes. You know, spend $2,000 a month on K tape, but you know, you, you won't pay an extra $400 for a new squat rack. Yeah. Or a bar or weights or like, yeah, anything. Um, so that's, that's probably one of the first barriers is actually just equipment. And I, and I know that you uh, and the rest of the pain and rehab crew, when you guys are talking with new clients um, and, 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 and new patients, when you're working outside of uh, uh, or in the clinic, you're asking them what kind of equipment do they have access to? Cause that's going to shape how you tailor the program. Um, so yeah, most PT clinics are probably, under-equipped 
to to have a legitimate SNC program um, for 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 people. What about what about like strength like black iron gyms? You know, if somebody's injured, and they go to a powerlifting gym like I do. What do you? What's the problem there, or is there a problem? Yeah. So the problem there to to completely oversimplify it, a lot of times in the rehab setting, you can turn it into a, a bodybuilding split because a lot of times you need to have some isolated movements. Machines come in really handy, and it, we do run into problems occasionally of an athlete that would benefit from something like an open chain knee extension or a hip abduction machine. But in a traditional powerlifting gym, you're, you're not finding much beyond maybe a leg press and a hack squat. Yep. Yeah. I, well, I went to, uh, I was in Phoenix this past weekend for the waste management open. And I asked on my Instagram, I'm like, Hey, what's the best bodybuilding and powerlifting gym, you know, in the area. And the whole thing was like, since I've got this shoulder injury, it dislocated my shoulder about a little over two weeks ago, I, I really would prefer to have access to machines, particularly like a hammer strength machine. Um, so I could adequately load the quote unquote, the intact side, and then also have a constrained range of motion for at least some of my upper body work as I, you know, progress closer back to my return to sport. And it's like, you know, I had friends that have, oh, I got a CrossFit gym, come to my CrossFit gym. I'm like, well, uh, I really can't do anything except for maybe squat and deadlift or like row or bench or press very light weights. And that's not adequately training the quote unquote healthy side that I still have, you know, full strength in. And so that I'm under training that side, I'm detraining really is what's happening and, and, and it's not going to work. Uh, so yeah, that's, there's kind of like, you'd prefer to have access to all that stuff. And if people don't, you have to be, get more creative, but yeah, I, I find that a lot of the PT we'll call them exercises that we see, you know, the one legged kettlebell bird squat, thing. And I'm not saying there's anything bad with those movements, right? There's a time and a place for everything. It's just, if it's applied incorrectly, like, you know, that's, that's a whole nother topic. But if you only have a 35 pound kettlebell, you might find like, well, that's challenging enough to make people work hard because of the balance requirements or whatever. But if their injury is not like, a, you know, centered around regaining balance, uh, for example, that might be a waste of their time and might be underloading them. And it's certainly underloading the intact side uh, and their upper body. And it's like, we're trying to train them as an athlete. And if you can't do that, if you can't get a good workout in your clinic, how, how are you doing it for other folks? Yeah, I totally agree with this. And I think from a rehab setting, a lot of times what ends up happening is we get overly focused on whatever the joint or the muscle is that's hurt and forget that we have another limb, a trunk, and you know another extremity we can work on. And you're, you're trying to fit basically a square peg in a round hole of saying, well, I'm going to do 17 different things for your knee. But like... I, I joke with clients all the time. If it's a lower extremity injury, like I love on day one, like, well, time to PR your bench. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, I have all this extra time I can devote to some upper body work or, you know, in the same token, occasionally you get a power lifter and you can't go heavy for a little while. And you're like, well, there's a lot of athletic principles that we can go work on here that you haven't done in a while. And it's going to be fun. I'm going to make you feel awkward because you haven't ran or you haven't jumped or you haven't done anything. I'm going to say athletic because I I would make the argument that beyond SBD, like that's a pretty narrow window of athleticism. Hey, no offense offense taken. 
Yeah, it, I mean, you're not much off of like a professional darts player. You're like really good and precise in this narrow range. Sure. Yeah, I, I've been enjoying. I've been enjoying fi- uh, the challenge of both improving my conditioning and also like unilateral work. Uh, unilateral work isn't as satisfying as hitting a, you know a PR deadlift or squat or bench press, but I I still feel like I'm getting a good workout, which is thing one. Like I feel like I'm actually training. Uh, which is one of the goals. And then two, the crossover effect where effectively I'm, I'm making, we're making this systemic sort of stimulus, applying the systemic st- stimulus to the body. It's going to cross over to the affected limb, the limb that we can't really train as hard. So from a you know rehab standpoint, you want that as well, in addition to not detraining. So make sure you have the equipment, make sure you have the space. Uh, if you don't have the equipment, you're going to have to get more creative um, but you know, I have not yet found a scenario where there's literally nothing I can do. Um, it's just how creative can you get? The worst part was when I, I had clients who were, would have an injury or something and we were all uh, under lockdown and it's like, well, you're at home. And I definitely know that you don't have access to my preferred machine or, you know, uh, attachment to a rack or whatever. So how can we, how can we, uh, uh, work something out? But the next thing probably that, that you'd have to take into consideration would have to be what sport are they playing? And like, can you, like you said earlier, you know, the basketball players like more likely have an ankle sprain or an ACL tear compared to a swimmer. And so even if that has nothing to do with the person, the reason why they're seeing you, that's something again, that's going to be part of your programming process, right? So how do you, if you have a, let's say a, a sport that involves a lot of running and jumping. So uh, soccer, uh, football, basketball, how does that shift your programming compared to somebody like a power lifter, uh, for example? Uh, do, you, do you have more jumping in there? Do you have more, I mean, more unilateral work? What's, what's kind of like the, the biggest difference you could see on paper? So there are a few parts to this. One, you certainly need more space. But especially if it's something like soccer or basketball, you have to be able to react to another individual. So you have to be able to program drills into where you're having to react with what's going on in front of you. You know, we could talk about neuromuscular control till we're blue in the face. One, I think that's an awful terminology. This is called skills training because that's essentially what we're developing as a skill, but you can have the most perfect 45 degree cut of all time. But if I'm a cornerback and I know that, well, the first thing I'm going to try and do is take that away from me. So it's being able to set up drills to where you're having to react and and you're having to make the system dirty, as it were. In in fact, just because my bias is youth training, I think I would make the argument sometimes that we've made the training environment too sterile because everything needs to be a perfectly drained field with, you know, a regulation Premier League ball. And like, that's awesome. But, you know, if you want to, if you want to learn how to be light on your feet, go play on a field with some rocks in it. You know, you're going to be a little bit more agile on what's going on there or, you know, play with a ball that's slightly deflated, because I guarantee you, if you learn how to control something in non-ideal times, the second you get ideal equipment, you're like, whew, well, this is cake. So you're programming some, some, I guess, sports specific type uh, environments, reactive sort of drills. And that definitely has, there's a training tool there as well. So people should be aware, like, if that's being programmed, even if it's being programmed for some, by somebody else, that, that there's a training load associated with that. 
And so there's going to be differences in available training resources for a powerlifter who may not have those sort of training, uh, that sort of additional training load. Well, I think especially for our older athletes, what happens is we all used to bench 405 in high school. And we assume that we can still go hit a three-pointer or, or still go out and play a like pickup kickball game or whatever. And we forget that we haven't sprinted in four years. And so it's just, we assume because we used to do it that we still can and completely neglect the training effect that goes with it. So a lot of times in, in rehab programming, I'll put some things in that I would put in for my youth athletes not necessarily because I think that, you know, you need to have a four seven forty, but I think sometimes it's a good perspective moment to be like, Oh, my vertical is not what it used to be. My sprinting, I'm, I'm basically running on sand now. And you, you make the case of like, well, should it be part of my programming or, you know, it, and it comes down to that, like risk reward. But I think especially, the other side of the spectrum from the youth athlete is we find these things we like doing and we forget that there are other things that comprise athleticism that we may want to expose ourselves to every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think that, you know, when I, when I'm programming for people, particularly long-term, I, I really do like in the GPP blocks to incorporate stuff that I think has been neglected for a long time. Uh, or, or, you know, especially if I haven't been working with them for an extended period of time, because ideally if they're working with me for an extended period of time, we're not neglecting those things. And it's not that we're giving equal weight to every particular physical characteristic. It's just that you should have some proficiency, I think in, in most, uh, of these, you know, physical domains, um, particularly if you are not a highly specialized athlete at the tip of the spear, because it's, it's kind of like where you are deficient, you're vulnerable. And I, I just don't see a need to like have that unless there's an extreme risk to try to develop capacity in that, you know, I, yeah, if, if you're telling me like, well, Jordan, you're saying that I need to be ready to handle like a 20 inch depth, you know, depth jump. And I'm like, well, I don't know that you need to be ready to handle that. Uh, especially if, uh, you have not been training in any sort or competing in any sort of uh, sport where you need capacity there, but you know, we could do a little bit of plyometric work you know, and gradually expose you to that. So it's not the most novel thing you've ever, you know, faced. So I, I like reserving that stuff for GPP blocks in my, you know, non-rehab uh, clients. But then that rehab uh, the t period of time does give you some extra training time that you need to like fill. And it's a good opportunity to to shift gears. So this that you mentioned this earlier, and I just briefly want to touch on it before we move to the next topic is when you're trying to, uh, determine how much training uh, and how to lay it out and, and, you know, some of these constraints that you're going to use to build a program. Yeah. The twice weekly 45 minutes of training is only going to be viable for the person who is either insufficiently active before, or that was their training load pr prior to the injury prior to coming under your care for the person like me, who's been training four or five days a week for, you know, better part of a decade that represents that's under training, right? That's uh, I'm going to get significantly worse. Uh, during the time, even though my injury quote unquote, is likely to resolve due to time and directly addressing it, uh, the all the rest of my physical skills and the physical development is going to take a hit. So what I like to do is think about, all right, here's how much time, literally duration that a person's been spending in the gym, spending training, uh, being active on average per week. And I want to maintain that. 
And <laughs> you're going to have to come up with stuff uh, that likely is different than what they were specialing, specializing in before. Is that similar to how you do it? Or are you more of like a frequency guy? Like, oh, they're training four days before, we're doing four days now. How do you, how do you suss that out? Uh, I, I absolutely try and meet them where they're at. And if you look at a lot of the rehab programming, you'll see things in that if I'm being honest, we probably aren't working towards a true quantifiable goal so much as I'm trying to keep you in shape. And the issue with talking about something, if you want to have some fun, sit around with your buddies and argue who's the best athlete of all time. And then, <laughs> but, but then what made them the best athlete? And the problem with talking about athleticism is it does become this very esoteric term very quickly. And I think that's part of why you see this in, in I'm, I concede I'm making a false dichotomy here, but you see this segregation between endurance sports and lifting sports, because it's very easy to put those in Excel. It's really hard to log. I went out and shot jumpers for 45 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, how do you, how do you track that? How do I, how do I put yeah. that in my, in my logger? Yeah. Yeah. Or how do I show that I went from 61% to 63% or was that signal versus noise? And I think that is the thing that, um, as we gear more towards conversations around physical activity and athletic development, you have to almost have this concession of, Yes, I want to quantify everything. Status post ACL reconstruction, I need to know your quadriceps index. But if I'm trying to make you an athlete, there's going to be a lot of gray in how we set those parameters up. Sure. Yep. So you're getting some history on where they where they're coming from, what their specialization's been like recently, what do they have access to, what we can work with, and then you're that's kind of where you're starting from when building a program. Um, how do you determine though what's enough? Like, yeah, that's enough training stimulus. Uh, and I know this is going to vary by individual and in their response to the program. Yes, we talk about inter-individual inter variation in training response and preferences and all that stuff all the time. But do you have like a rule of thumb or like something that ah, I recognize it when I see it, the old Justice Potter thing? Like, how do, you, how do you determine what's enough training stimulus when somebody's in the rehab setting? Uh, as much as some people are going to cringe, there is an experience component to this to where I, I think after you've had 10,000 reps, you, you look at it and like, ah, yeah, we're kind of where we need to be. But you also have things like session RPE and an athlete's prior training history to where if you're telling me every session is a, like I have an athlete now who is rated the first two weeks of sessions under a seven for the entire time but we're just getting back into training. So if we had constraints from a surgery, I may not want to go as hard early on. And I, I the oversimplification, and, and I don't even know if you and I have discussed this before, but one of my rowing friends has a statement that I think holds a lot of weight in that most people's hard isn't hard enough and most people's easy isn't easy enough. Yep. And, and I think a lot of times when you look at what goes in the athletic bucket, it, it shouldn't be this grueling hard work. It, it is the, like the play side of things. 
and I'm here having fun doing this. It's not going to add a bunch of extra. I'm not going to be able to come back from this tomorrow. But I think of too many athletes, how they end up getting a hold of us in rehab is that, like, let's face it, in the lifting world, everyone's okay going full send. Like, it, it, single at RPE, you know, 11, because ours is louder. And, like, everyone understands that. But I think a lot of people don't appreciate that back offset side of it and accumulating that volume and how in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't need to be that hard. Like we're not going to war. The middle East is safe when we're in the gym and we just need to, you know, get in, check the boxes and accumulate that load over time. It's like, I imagine someone trying to, to go back to the uh, Ericsson 10,000 hours like, can you imagine someone like, I need to get my 10,000 hours and like slamming keys on the piano for all 10,000 hours. The reason why I think people default to the hardest, as hard as possible is that's so easy to know that you, you know, you paid the man today. You, you know, you, you went to the well, emptied the bucket, whatever other analogy, you, you left it all out on the field. You just went to failure, turned it up to 11. It's really easy to quantify. Whereas when you start getting the submaximal stuff, it becomes more squishy. Right. If I'm like, ah, I want your training sessions on average, for the most part, to be a seven or eight. You know, if we start doing too many sessions below that, I think we're kind of mailing it in. It's probably not enough from like, how hard should this be? And if we're always above that, I think it's things are creeping up too high. Now, whether that's due to the programming in the gym or whether it's due to outside the gym stuff and we're just not reacting to that based on how you're how you're doing, we'll have to suss that out. But it's just harder to to kind of leave a little bit in the tank, but not like so much in the tank, unless that's the goal. I, I mean, me personally, for my conditioning stuff, I've been really diving into this, this polarized approach where you're doing a lot of submaximal work, right? The low and slow stuff. And it's got to be easy enough where you keep your heart rate. For me, I'm keeping it under 130. I'm like, I want to be right at that 120 to 130 zone. And people are like, that seems low. I'm like, yeah, but I'm logging some hours of conditioning, some hours. Uh, and that's the point, though, to build that, that base. But then when I go for the anaerobic stuff or even my hard uh, aerobic intervals, that's RP nine or 10, right? And it's just like full, full send, but it, it is, that is the seasoning to my main course. And my main course is the lower intensity stuff. Um, I, I do like that, that most people's hard isn't hard enough. And most people's easy isn't easy enough. That's, that's probably true. Um, particularly for, for, uh, training, uh, both resistance training and conditioning, it's, it's interesting though, cause that's, that's like how hard the training should be. And I, I, I like that. I guess, I guess where people are probably still having questions is, is yeah, but how much of it should I program? What's the volume? What's, you know, weekly, what should I be looking at? And I really liked how your presentation kind of framed this whole thing through the physical activity guidelines. It's like, look, basically no one is meeting the current physical activity guidelines, especially if you restrict this analysis to the youth. Right. Like just very few people are doing it. So the odds that they're meeting it, you know, that you were seeing, you know, this 8% of, of kids that come through your, your door and come under your care, uh, it's pretty, pretty low. Um, so at least getting to that point, that's like priority number one, like at least get to the guidelines, uh, minimums. And then after that, it, it basically depends on what they're wanting to do. If they're doing this for sport, you may have additional requirements. So, the current physical activity guidelines for adults is twice weekly resistance training. 
and then 500 to 1,000 met minutes of what I call conditioning. They call it aerobic training, but it's not just aerobic training. It's moderate to vigorous intensity aerobic activity, or it's vigorous intensity uh, conditioning, which can be anaerobic. So 500 to 1,000 met minutes and how they calculate that is if you're doing a five metabolic equivalent activity, which is a really slow jog or really fast walk, that's pretty much where most people will fall in for that. If you did that for an hour, you basically multiply those together. That's 300 met minutes of activity. And so you need to do 500 to 1,000 per week to meet the minimums. Uh, so that's from the conditioning standpoint and resistance training twice, twice weekly. For youth, it's three times weekly resistance training, which I, I think my the guy who carries my namesake, or perhaps I carry his namesake, Avery, I think his is actually Fagenbaum because it's F-A-I, or maybe it is also Feigenbaum, but we're not related, but I get that all the time. He's like, he was, he's actually probably more of a bro and was like, dude, three times a week. Let's do that. Adults got to do twice weekly. Let's do three, three times weekly for kids. But Derek, how many people, how many kids are actually meeting those guidelines? Like what's less than 10%. <sighs> Why? It's, Why though? Well, so there's a couple of layers to this one. The, the lowest hanging fruit is we are still fighting this narrative that resistance training is bad for youth. And this is the hill I will die on. And I, I will go in every comment section of every sports center post every time they put a kid up lifting weights and fight this battle. The American Academy of Pediatrics has a position statement on youth resistance training saying it is perfectly safe. There is an international consensus statement. Resistance training is perfectly safe for youth. And we need to get over this hump and realize that it's not only safe, like the American or American Pediatrics Academy actually goes as far as to say it should be an essential component of training and emphasis on essential. But for some reason, we think it's okay to have a kid play in a soccer tournament where your you know joint angular speeds are upwards of 900 degrees per second, but we're worried about them picking up a 45 pound weight because, oh God, his growth plates. Like it, it, in the history of PubMed searches, I have never seen an avulsion fracture from resistance training in the youth population. I don't know who's breaking all their epiphyseal plates, the growth plates, like what sports got the most. I, I would assume accidents in general uh i would assume baseball because anytime you have an injury named after someone that means it's occurring at a rate to where it needed an eponym and oh, tommy sure. john surgery like you know you're pulling up off an epiphyseal plate like it's like whenever you're having these ucl type injuries especially in the younger athletes where it's not even like a mid-substance thing it is the growth or, you know, Ajgud Slaughters to wear, or <laughs> one of my favorites in the orthopedic world is the differential between patellofemoral pain syndrome, Ajgud Slaughters, and Sidney Larson Johansson syndrome. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, does it hurt on your tibia at the inferior pole of your patella or the tendon? Because that's our differential. We treat them the exact same way. It's just we're showing off on, hey, I can tell you where it hurts. Uh, but no, I, I think there's a couple of cells that I've had with parents. And one of the ones that really seems to hit home is 
okay, so you're paying money for a throwing coach or a hitting coach or a goalie coach or whatever the sport is. If your child gets a D1 scholarship, they're going to have a dedicated strength coach. Why should that wait until college? And and a lot of parents that, that resonates with them. And then you also have the conversation of name one athlete that's ever been too strong. So, you know, I've joked for years, like I, I, I'm older now, but you know, I'm, I'm a relatively large human. I am not a basketball player anymore, but I'm stronger than most 12 year olds. And if you put me on the court with them, I'm going to go hang 50 just because I'm going to live in the paint the whole time. And it has nothing to do with my quality of basketball player. So, you know, strength does have a lot of manifestations for like, it basically like strength is your alphabet that you're going to write whatever story you are going to do for athleticism. Yep. Yeah. You have to be stronger. And I, I think where people go astray there is like, so strength is super important. Okay. I'm into that. So I need to get as strong as humanly possible. And it's like, well, kind of, but within the constraints of your other, the other physical uh, skills and tools and resources that you need to exceed in your sport or sports that you're selecting. And if you haven't selected a sport yet, then you should develop all of these other things uh, until you either decide or don't decide, but then have some level of interest that you want to specialize. And people are like, no, I just need to be as strong as humanly possible. And the most weight I can lift is a squat, the bench press and the deadlift. They just default to powerlifting. And probably some of that has to do with a lot of strength and conditioning coaches just being powerlifting curious or interested in powerlifting themselves. They come from that background. They're like, well, I got strong. So, and I like being strong and getting other people strong. So they go into strength and conditioning, they end up being the, the coach. And it's like, it doesn't matter how much you squat on the football field. It, it really does. I, last time I checked, there wasn't a squat rack and a barbell, uh, you know, and it doesn't matter if it's high bar or low bar, if we're going to even say that squats are a great proxy for leg strength. So do all I want you to be able to do from the time that you come under my care to the time that the season starts, is I want your, you to get stronger in whatever movements that we're doing and whatever rep schemes that we're doing and whatever other development, I want you to get better. So if we decide that we're going to do high bar squats or low bar squats, I want that to go up right? For whatever rep schemes we're doing. Same thing for bench press or press or dumbbell work or the hammer machine or, you know, power cleans. You know, it, 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 what I'm getting at is it doesn't, you don't have to default to, well, which exercises move the most weight because that's not getting you the strongest for what's happening on the field unless your field happens to be those exercises. One, I think powerlifting curious is my favorite new phrase. Uh, two, I, I could not agree more And this kind of gets back to what I was saying a moment ago about, you know, needing the level playing field on the perfectly drained field with the regulation ball. And it's cool because it's really easy to track variables when you have all of that. And I think that might be why people are powerlifting curious is because it's really easy to plug in your Excel and be like, oh, I, I just added 10 pounds to my estimated wonder at max versus I spent five minutes in an eight by eight square playing tag. But as a result, I learned to be able to drop my hips, change direction, decelerate. And once again, these more nebulous things that 
unless you are an NBA player with mocap attached to your jersey, you're never going to be able to track those variables. Right. Best you could do would say, all right, I played tag, you know, in a eight by eight square at RPE eight for 10 minutes. And then you could, you know, say, all right, well, that was my volume load for the day. And then if you were trying to progress that over time, maybe the duration gets higher, the RPE gets higher, you add additional player. I mean, whatever. There, there, there are ways that even without like objective metrics, you can like pro- progress over time, but it's, you're definitely having less data than, okay, I squatted, I got my bar velocity, I got my RPE, I got the reps, I got the weight, it's the same every time more or less. So um, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that the take home from this particular section is that if someone's not meeting the current physical activity guidelines, like that's your, that's your, and that's your first goal, like get to that level, get to that level. And then you can work on exceeding that based on their goals, develop this broad base of physical, these physical skills. And then as far as from a population level, we need to get way more people meeting these, meeting these minimums, way more people and any other discussion about like safety or like optimal training protocols, like that stuff has a place but it's way far away from like general health promotion just way far away unless you're talking about from like from a safety standpoint that being a barrier and then you just have to address it but if you're talking about like well technique at this particular technique is safer than this other particular technique it's like okay we can suss that out and argue the pros and cons of that but that is not helping anybody get into resistance training that's or if you're if you're talking about the most efficient way to move weight you know to be the strongest it's like Who's this for? Who's this for? Because guys, over 95% of the population in the developed world is not meeting, they're not meeting the current physical activity guidelines. They're not meeting them. As like, so who are you talking to? This is why I called it rounding errors. Like it's it's awesome that we could talk about what is better, a high bar or a low bar squat. You know what's better than both of those? A squat. Yeah, any squat. Like literally yeah. any squat. Yeah, you, you need to check that box before we start getting into where we should be aiming out of this. And when you look at the data, we're just horrendous about being active. And some of my co-presenters at CSM gave excellent talks on periodization. I'm on board with it. Like it has its flaws. I, I ascribe to the Keeley bottle. I have Bapa as one of my favorite textbooks. Cool. Like let's let's play that game. I don't care what kind of mesocycle you're running if you're not meeting physical activity guidelines. Right. Yep. Yep. hundred percent. hundred percent agree. So in the rehab context, we're getting to know the person and what they have access to, uh, what their previous training was, what do they got to do for sport? We're making sure that whatever program we, we cook up is at least meeting the physical activity guidelines for both the resistance training and conditioning standpoint. And then adding on to that based on their current level of fitness act, uh, the resources they have. So how much time do they actually have to train and what are their requirements for return to sport? And then ultimately encouraging people to participate within that. So that's where we're starting. Uh, how does this change over time though, Derek? So when you're trying to organize training over a long period of time, uh, again, when people come under your care, they're starting in this rehab setting. But then like, what, what comes after that? I know that you ascribe to the, you know, long-term athletic development model. Uh, I think Ford was the first person to put that in writing, I think 2011 or something like that. 
how do you how do you use this in in that context? Well, I think a lot of times it comes down to having a conversation about what the athlete in front of you's goals are. And I can't tell you how many people that I've worked with that have painted themselves into a powerlifting corner just because they're like, well, I love SVD, but I haven't thought about the fact that I want to go play in a kickball tournament, or I, I just had an athlete run a 10 K and they came at it from a very, uh, strength-based approach, but they hadn't thought about the fact of like, well, I have all of these other things I want to accomplish. And I think a lot of times it is having that conversation about prioritizing what their goals are versus where they're at, because you'll have some people that are just floating in the ether and they're like, well, I trained to train and they're like, okay, we probably need to nail down two or three things to work on. And then you'll have other people that have 17 very concrete goals. And you're like, yeah, we can do that, but you have to quit your day job and run trend in order to hit these goals. And yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, so, uh, and once again, these are kind of the extreme situations out of it. And everyone else falls in that like Bayesian middle of, okay, where should our priorities be? Like uh, I have an athlete right now who was very anchored into the powerlifting world. And as part of the rehab, he had some kettlebells sitting around. So we started doing some more kettlebell training. He's like, I really enjoy this. Cool. Let's facilitate this. Like, what do I need to do in order for you to maximize your benefit and enjoy working out again? Because I, I think what gets lost a lot of times is going to the gym should be a release. Like it shouldn't be an extra pressure. And people get so committed to SBD that they forget that lifting should be fun. And it's like, well, I, I need to add weight to the bar. No, you don't, man. Like you're, if, if you are at the gym lifting, you are already in the 92nd percentile of Americans in physical activity guideline. If you are lifting even a remotely moderate amount of weight, you're not even in the 99th, you're in the 99 point and run a nine from me in Cincinnati, Ohio to you in San Diego. And I think that gets lost a lot of times, especially as we've had this manifestation of social media to where it used to be, you know, if, if I went to the gym and my top set is 565 for the day, just to throw an arbitrary number out there, like odds are in that gym, there might be one or two other, I grew up in rural West Virginia, so no one's touching that. So, you know, you, you think like, oh, I'm a badass. And then you see, or you go to a gym that has elite lifters and you're like, oh, maybe not so much. But the problem is the paradigm now is all we see are these people doing freak things. So everyone compares themselves to the freaks instead of realizing like how much those individuals are outliers. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think it's okay to specialize and then have certain performance outcomes that you're like at you really want to chase down. But I agree that if you, if going to the gym starts to become a chore, especially in the rehab setting due to not only the numbers that you used to hit, so that's in your brain, right. But then also what numbers other people are hitting and how you feel like your progress is you're just, you're losing, you know, you're losing forward momentum, you're losing ground, man, that stuff's just going to eat you alive. And I really think it's going to compromise how you do long-term. So you got to start with a place that's fun, enjoyable that you're going to adhere to. And that, and if you're not having fun when you're training, I would 
say to you that something's got to change. I, I, whether whether that be movements, whether it be loading rep schemes, uh, you know, getting changing the mindset where you're more process oriented rather than outcome oriented, like whatever needs to happen. Uh, but I, I do think that yeah, when people get hyper focused, especially earlier on, maybe way too like too early, they don't even have that perspective to be like. This is a longer term process that I am engaging in. And so as long as I'm punching the clock, putting in the work, giving my best effort, I'm doing everything I can to get to where I want to be. But it's like if you just start working out, your first exposure into the gym is, you know, you happen to come across barbell medicine. You're like barbells. That seems cool. And you're like, well, they just do a lot of squats, benches and deadlifts because they happen to be powerlifters who have been lifting for decades. Uh, and so then you're doing squat bench deadlift, but you've never taken the time to develop the rest of this sort of these, these physical skills. Uh, you don't have that perspective where it's like, yeah, I developed some conditioning as well. I developed some high velocity force production. I developed some agility. I developed some unilateral strength, you know, specifically I did, you know, heavy Bulgarian split squats for a cycle or, you know, uh, and lunges. And so you're just thinking, yeah, but my squat bench and deadlift aren't what, what's happening with those. It's like, man, there's such a bigger base of physical development that we, we probably should have started with to have this perspective of like where you're trying to go to the tip of the spear and what sort of work and process is going to be involved in getting there. So I like this long-term athletic development model that, that you use. It's like the beginning when you just come in, uh, you're, you know, you're learning to train. You're, you're, you're learning to engage in a somewhat systematic process of putting in physical work to get training adaptations. And these are very generalized by design. Yes, you're trying to get stronger. Yes, you're trying to improve high velocity force production uh, to the extent, you know, if the rehab setting, it's like, well, is that safe? Is that, you know, you, 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 there may be some limitations there. Are you developing your cardiorespiratory fitness? And there are multiple levels to that. And then you graduate from this broad base to something a little more specific, uh, you know, you're training to train. That's the, the verbiage that you use. You're trying to get better at a narrower scope of things. Um, and then lastly, you kind of progress to this training for competition and then training to win and, and all that stuff. It just gets narrower and narrower and narrower. And it's like you if you don't go through that process, you just try to skip to the end. You're missing that. You know, it's, it's like that that meme. It's not a meme. It's like an inspirational picture it's like an iceberg all you see is the top but you don't see all the stuff that's underneath it it's like man if you've been in resistance training and you're uh spd focused and you've only been doing spd that's been your primary focus for the last like two or three years to the exclusion of most other things the, your development while initially may have been faster in spd is probably tapering off earlier than it otherwise would have and you have again less sort of physical skills to draw upon because we didn't take the time at the beginning to build this big base. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I feel like I say this over and over again and people are like, yeah, but you all you do is squat bench, deadlift, press. And I'm like, well, that's not true exactly. And then also I've been doing this since, since 2004, like in a systematic method. I'm not saying it's perfect. I would have changed a lot of stuff about how I trained, you know, coming up to now, but I did bodybuilding. I did CrossFit. I've, you know, I've done whatever program that you could have got off the internet in the mid 2000s. I probably did that. <laughs> I've done endurance blocks. Like you got to build this base. I think that's important for people to know. 
Well, but I think like the messaging part of us, and this is one of the reasons I really appreciated like being a part of the team has transitioned a little bit more away from like SBD's life into we need to be active and we need to hit these guidelines. But, you know, in, in the same token, what I would say is, and this will be my like hair club for men pinch is uh, I vividly remember last summer I wanted to go shoot basketball because it was a nice day outside. And I was like, man, I have a 10 K program for tomorrow morning test. And I was like, I don't need to go shoot basketball because I'm going to 10 K test on the earth. And I was like, what the hell, man, I'm 39. I'm not comparing myself to anyone else. This test doesn't mean anything. Go out and shoot basketball for a while. And I think sometimes we just overweight what we're doing to such a degree that we forget that like, we need to go have fun. And to your point, like, I think there is something to be said for that kind of uh, analogous athleticism, if you will, to where, you know, myself as a sweep rower, a golf swing is a little bit more natural to me because I've been or I spent years turning to the left. So I, I have more thoracic rotation. And you look at it like learning how to decelerate on a basketball court versus a football field versus a soccer pitch. And like, cool. That's awesome that you've done it entirely soccer centric, but learning those other deviations are, are going to give you some nuance and, and let you do it in ways that other people can't. And, and I think people forget that part of being an athlete is being able to do things that other people can't. So why are you trying to do things the exact same way as everyone else? Yep. It gives you a higher physical IQ. You're just getting smarter. Give yourself more options, especially when things, when the conditions change. Um, so you have somebody on like a rehab focused training block. They're meeting physical activity guidelines or exceeding them. They're, it's been tailored to use the equipment they have access to, the amount of training time, they have available and it's very it's similar to what they were doing before um how does it like is there a transition point where it's we're done with rehab and we're like all right now we're back to training like is there a definitive point or is this just sort of blend it just gets grayer and grayer until you're like oh you're ready for back for get back to sport practice i I would go to the porn definition here of you know when you see it uh but a lot of times i will have conversations with athletes of like i'll just explicitly state like we're hitting the inflection point we're we're moving from rehab into training now. and a lot of times that's where you have the conversation of like what is your goal for next steps are are you wanting to run a strength block a hypertrophy block or are you wanting to return to sport and and actually i would argue return to sport a lot of times is a little bit of an easier metric because if you know the sport it's easier to find the parameters Whereas if we're going from a rehab block into, let's say, the strength template, okay, well, I need a program to start moving you towards some heavy singles. Sometimes that set rep scheme is completely predicated, not so much on the weight you're moving, but the confidence for it. And coming out of that rehab block, a lot of times it is moving from that, like, do I have this? Do I have this? To that aggressively approaching the bar. Like one thing in anyone who's ever been like rehab coached by me, people who don't trim their video, I love like counting the seconds between when they step up to the bar and when they start the rep. And like, this took you 26 seconds. You lost before you ever touched the bar. 
So our goal today or our goal next week is going to be you have eight seconds from the time you walk up to the bar to that thing should be off the ground. And it is that little minutia and that like nuance of knowing how to look at it and pick up confidence cues. And, and you have to have a little bit of that uh, edge to you in getting back to training of, oh, I don't only have this. I have this plus 10 pounds. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing coming back from the adductor tear. Like I had, I had checked all the boxes, right? I was up, I was working at heavy fives and fours and stuff and felt reasonably fine squatting and, and deadlifting. But when it came back, like the first week I was back to singles and I was like, it's just, it's between the years, right? It's a super tentorial problem. And so that's the thing. It's like, man, why does this feel so, so bad? It's like, well, you're in your head about it. And the only way to get out of your head is kind of re-exposure over and over and over again, make it more automatic, have less, you know, self-doubt, less fear, and just get quote unquote back to normal. So definitely experience that. I assume it's going to happen the first time I unrack 400 to bench press after this shoulder thing. So, but yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll use the time test. It's like, all right, I got five seconds to sit down on the bench and unrack this thing. Otherwise, do you think about it in yours and mine communication? Like what did I text you the other day? It was like, this is going to be easier to come back from than your adductor. And it, it seems like a simple thing, but it's stuff that you need to hear because I guarantee you at some point you'll be like, well, Derek said this is going to be easier, so I'm fine. And, and it is like, because on the other side of it, if I looked at you, it was like, you need to be careful, man. Like, that's going to weigh on you. I can't tell you how many people are like, are you you're, you're sure you're good to exercise? You're good to train? You're good to play golf? You get, I'm like, dude. What? Let the people are really worried about my labrum right now as well. And I'm like, why are you worried? More worried about my labrum than I am. I imagine my labrum was in eight different pieces per previously, <laughs> but I'm not worried about it, man. Well, but I think this goes back to in, in this is a moment where, you know, posting mine and yours initial text thread might be beneficial because it, it was the, okay, so if it is your labrum, what's next steps? Like the evidence doesn't support you. It, it like your athletic status needing to have any type of repair. So drop the weight, carry on. You're going to be fine. Yep. Yep. I expect it to hurt a little bit. And I don't think that's labrum related. And even if it is, how can I tell? And if, even if it, and even if I could tell, then what am I going to do about it? So I'm still training, you know, got to find a way to, to get around it. So all you people talk about my labrum. Back off. Uh, so this brings us to like the last the last question in the rehab setting. Again, so we're designing this program. And, and again, just to rehash, we've gone over the individual specific requirements, both the previous training sports uh, requirements, the how what equipment they have access to, training resources, are they meeting the physical activity guidelines at a minimum, making sure that we're tailoring the program just like we would normally do, and then progressing that over time. Uh, what about things outside the gym or this programming magic? Like, are there things that influence how well an individual is going to do? Maybe the the PS of the biopsychosocial model, the psychosocial and environmental uh, impact. Uh, what what do you think about that? Are there other things that people can do to get better faster? So, I think the current garage gym phenomenon is excellent because it has gotten people more active. But I can't tell you how many athletes I've had in the rehab setting to where I've recommended go getting a gym membership for rehab just so they can be around other people and see where they are with their training. Um, and then 
I, I think sometimes you do need to see that you're better off than what you think you are. Uh, I've, I've had an athlete before that their Friday workout was to go to happy hour and talk to three because, uh, yeah, because they were just in their own head. And what's funny is this person's listening to it. Like, yeah, he definitely has done that because you sit there and you think of the getting this like, woe is me mentality. And when you look at some of our predictors of positive outcomes, it is things like, uh, optimism or having a good peer support. And if all you're doing is sitting in your garage, trying to figure out why you can't add five pounds, nothing positive is going to come from that. Sometimes it is, you know, gym is life, but it's getting out and realizing that there are other facets to this as well. And one of the questions I, I like to ask when teaching this is, you know, who are you? If we went back to 16 year old Jordan and did that, odds are like motocross is going to be in that top five. So you get injured and let's say you have a catastrophic hip injury that takes you out of motocross for six to nine months. You just lost a large part of your identity. So now you're not motocross, but it, you don't have to be because we can be athlete in the grand scheme of sets. Like you can be an athlete and a motocross rider is a subset of that. So sometimes it's pulling it up to the athlete and letting them see, oh, well, there's a lot more athletic principles I can develop. And it's funny because, you know, we've touched on some of like the space and equipment conversations, but I'm sure when most people open up a rehab clinic, they don't think to themselves, one, I need a barbell, but two, like, you know, it'd be really handy here as a skier. But if you want to talk about a great way to get somebody cardiovascular conditioned when, you know, you may be partial weight bearing on one leg for six weeks, go hand them the handles and let them go. A lot of the, the identity stuff is interesting. Like, I mean, even right now, a lot of my content, a lot of my, especially online persona is lifting heavy weights. And like when I had the adductor thing, I couldn't really lift heavy weights except for bench press. And then now with the shoulder dislocation, it's like, I can't hardly lift anything heavy because... <laughs> Loading, it's difficult. So I'm trying to find ways that allow me to, it's not reinventing myself, but it's like express that phys- the desire to be like physically engaged in different, in, in different ways. So that for me, that's conditioning right now. Um, the optimism thing is super interesting too. And I feel like that's one thing that I personally have going for me in my injury rehab stuff. And I I never knew how different it was until I started talking to people or people were asking me about my injury, even with the adductor, you know, people were like, so like, how's it feel? They're really focused on like the symptoms. Right. I'm like, oh, I haven't even thought about that, to be honest. Right. Like I'd more been kind of thinking about, man, I put in all this work for this meet and then things kind of went sideways before the meet. And then I had this injury. That's kind of a bummer to me. But as far as how I'm looking at my, what the next 12 weeks are going to look like for me? I know it's going to get better. I'm going to be back where I was. I'm not concerned at all. Having that look at uh, outlook rather than like, this is the end. This is catastrophic likely made a huge difference. And honestly, for me, it was like almost seven weeks from beginning to end of that. Like, wow, this is definitely rehab what I'm doing to, okay, this is normal training. Um, and yeah, just talking with people, they're like, wait, but did you tore your adduct. It was like torn and you're in the gym and you're deadlifting. I'm like, well, yeah, why not? I mean, that's, that's going to make it feel better. So, but so I, I want to take this a step further because I think what you said right there is hilarious because you were talking about your persona being picking up heavy weight. 
and to you, you know, 455 pounds isn't heavy. But I, I put up that post uh, where I was basically making or taking a pot shot at PT rehab facilities being under equipped, showing like the 155, 265, 375 deadlift. And like, I vividly remember it, it made me laugh because I, I put up something that like a set of 10 at 375 was an RPE seven for me that day for deadlift. And like, it wasn't 45 minutes later you texted me and you're like, yeah, I took 485 for 12 today. And it was like an RPE six, like <laughs> son of a bitch. Like, <laughs> and so like your perspective on what is heavy is so skewed that sure. like, I, I, I hope you can appreciate from the meta of this entire podcast, like even what you consider heavy is to me hilarious because there's probably under 10,000 people on this planet that could move your rehab weight. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's small. It's a small number, but I, yeah, but I, and I think that's for practitioners that are listening to this. If you got me in your clinic, like, what would you do? Like, do you have 500 pounds to load? I mean, if you're just telling me to go to the gym, that's fine. Right. Like, but, but if you're, if I'm going to a PT clinic, you imagine, you know, all right, well, we're going to do deadlifts today and they load up 135. There's, how do, how do we make this hard? Like you have to artificially make it hard. All right, well, we're going to have you on a BOSU ball or like one legged, you know, <laughs> with, with your eyes closed. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's just, it, 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 you can't load. But you're assuming they have 135. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, yeah. But that's, yeah, that's true. So the, some of these psychosocial environmental things are, are interesting. Um, I would also say that stress management is going to be important. If you have, if people are going through big lifetime stress, that's going to hinder their programming outcomes, uh, rehab outcomes rather. And, and you are going to likely going to have to adjust the program. The thing is, when I say that people are like, well, what do I do for stress? And I'm like, well, stress is kind of like this, you know, umbrella term for all sorts of things that we don't really have a lot of active control over, especially as far as management goes, we just kind of respond to it. That's what we do as humans. So, you know, I'm not telling people to reduce their stress. I'm just saying that is a consideration for how well people are going to do. If I had been starting another business, for example, or going through a bad breakup or a family loss at the same time, I tore my adductor, you'd be like, and this is in your head. You might not have said it out loud, but you, this is likely going to be a, a more protracted sort of process. Just you have less resources to dedicate to training. And then two days ago or a few days ago, uh, Spencer had that uh, post. It was like top life events that throw off weight loss. It was like having kids, getting married, new job, family, death, moving to a new city. I was like, Oh, I've checked every one of those boxes twice in the past five years. And, and you know, you look at it in it, living in when I was still in Gainesville, my training was Monday through Friday set, had people show up, we trained together and then moved to California and had all this stuff go on. And I was probably averaging like 3.5 days a week. And, but I also like literally have hit all five of these twice since 2017. Yeah. Well, I've only gotten married once, but I did have to move my wedding. So <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was yeah, it? yeah. I was gonna ask you. I'm like, oh, you got married twice. Hmm. Does Kim know? Um, yeah. 
All, all of this is to say that these psychosocial and environmental factors are going to have, can have significant impact on not only just regular programming outcomes, but also rehab outcomes. And so it's like, you might be doing everything right, programming wise, rehab setting wise, but if you're not addressing some of these psychosocial factors, again, the, what is the outlook? Is somebody uh, they, uh, optimistic? Uh, do they have social support? Do they have confidence in what they're doing? Um, are we addressing the athlete identity role? Those, those things can severely hinder how fast somebody's going to be able to return to their prior level of function or uh, surpass that. So having that in the back of your mind and, and maybe paying some attention to that when you're actually talking to your clients about how they're doing um, can actually help improve their outcomes. So Derek, as we wrap up here, what's the take home for people when designing uh, programs? And we're going to say that this 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 is going to be the same for both adults and kids. Um, I want people to take that away from this. There's not, we don't need to do a kid's rehab special. This is, you know, same sort of thing, but as far as designing a rehab program, what are some main takeaways you want to give? Well, our absolute baseline should be, we're meeting fiscal activity guidelines. And then the program should be enjoyable. Then we have to have metrics in place to where we can track progress. And, you know, I fully concede that sometimes it is a little bit arbitrary, like checking a deadlift one RM, but in the same token, if you're not testing, then we're living too far in the ether. And I think too often we have rehab programs built to where we just assume people get better without factoring in something like regression to the mean. And you look at, uh, I'm going to turn this back into ACL rehab because that's really where I guess my specialty and the evidence is. But you look at a paper that's like your quad strength is affected seven years later. Like, well, if you never adequately loaded the quad in the first place, then no kidding. <laughs> right. Yeah. Dr. Derek Miles, thanks for coming on the podcast. This is episode 167 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Once again, we just dropped the new hip template that is on our website. If you have hip pain in front, the side, the rear of your hip, and you know where your hip is anatomically, this template maybe for you. Check that out. Uh, also, we have pain and rehab seminars. You want to learn some more about this stuff, how to practically apply it to your patients, to your clients. The pain and rehab team, they're going to be in Portland, Oregon here next month in March. And then in Greenville, is that June? May? Uh, it's May. 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 And spots are selling out quickly. Uh, links to both of those in the description below. And then also some of the citations from Derek's presentation, uh, the combined sections meeting. I put those there as well. So thanks again for joining us. Before you go anywhere, leave us a five-star rating and review. Really helps drive traffic to our podcast and we keep bringing you the latest nuance and health and fitness. We'll see you here next week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast.